1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Beyond Fear. We spent the second half of the season focusing on people that have perpetrated sexual harm and the formal sex crimes policies enacted under the guise of public safety and doing right by survivors. We wanted to shift the focus back again to survivors of sexual violence by answering questions from our listeners. Over the course of this season, we have received some excellent and really important questions from you. Many of the questions you asked will actually become episode topics for Season 2. And although we cannot answer every question, we decided to focus on two questions that we are frequently asked. We have crafted this episode in a way that allows us to take these questions and answer them in a very intimate and authentic way, Survivor to Survivor. So the first question we'll address in this episode is something that we get asked quite frequently as public survivors. And uh, the question is, how do you know when you're over it? When are you done? Um, Are you in therapy for the rest of your life? Uh, So the really, I guess, depressing answer (laughs) is um, you're not necessarily ever over it. Uh, I think that it doesn't necessarily mean you'll Be in therapy for the rest of your life, either. Um, But there is no over it. Uh, I think, as we've talked about in previous episodes, it's something that fundamentally changes you. That you, for most survivors, it feels like you're a different person after than you were before. And, you know, we're going to talk about some of our experiences that hopefully will resonate with other survivors that are listening. Um, But I know that a couple of books were um, very impactful in terms of how I understood the trauma I went through. And I think for you as well, Alyssa, the same or similar books. Um, Absolutely. They're both sitting on my shelf right here. (laughs) (laughs) So the body keeps the score is one of those books. And this was incredibly eye opening for me because it was the first time I really understood what trauma does to the body and the brain at a bio like a fundamental biological level um and it it really explained a lot of my own behavior to me, uh which was interesting and strangely comforting, but also validating. uh it felt good to be seen and to be understood, especially, I think, from a medical perspective. And we'll talk about that more as we go through this episode, some of the challenges around medical care, not just mental health care.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way about both of those books. And I was reflecting on something that you said a minute ago about how, like, the person that you are before you experience trauma, and that goes for really any kind of trauma, but you know, in our case, specifically sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I even said this in my TED talk, right? There's the before rape and there's the after rape. And in many ways, they remain forever disconnected. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: that is because both um, of the biological changes that happen at a cellular level and the psychological ones. Right. Uh, And some of that you work on in therapy. um, And in many ways, you can get beyond the... I guess the acute impacts yeah. that sexual trauma can have, but the cellular ones they don't go away, mm-hmm. and so you learn how to navigate them, you learn how to work with them, right? Um, but as we said, there's the before and there's the after, and they in many ways they remain disconnected,
1: right? And I, you know, I think that's something that comes up in trauma and recovery quite a bit, and it felt. Um, incredible to hear that in that format as well, because it is validating because there are times where you feel like you're crazy. And to hear others' experiences with traumatic events and to hear um, that you aren't alone is, I think, a really important um part of all of this and to hear it in such a sort of factual way is even more important. Um so no you're not crazy, there's evidence of this happening.
0: And I think that's why we wanted to do this episode and why we focused specifically on these questions because I th- I think what we're trying to do with this episode is to really take a deeper dive mm-hmm. on a very intimate level uh, from us to all of you Mm
1: -hmm. to
0: talk through some of these things. Yes, it is common for survivors to experience flashbacks and nightmares and anxiety and like all of that is true, but there's so much more Mm -hmm. that often doesn't get discussed, Mm -hmm. um, at least in the way that we have walked through this podcast.
1: Right. Right. That we wanted to be able to share with you. And interestingly. And not off topic. Which is also interesting. That this is an off topic. I never have had a flashback. I've never had a nightmare. About being raped. And I thought that meant. That I was over it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I. Because I really thought. Well if I'm not experiencing. Quote PTSD. And I'm not you know, this was several years ago, and I'm not, you know, having nightmares or flashbacks all these years later, then I must be okay. And, you know, that's, I think that sometimes what happens is that people think, well, because I'm not thinking about it or because it's not maybe impacting my everyday life right now, I'm done with it or it's put away. Um, But I think what came up in episode six um specifically with Mo sharing her story, with having kids, that our life circumstances are sort of always shifting and changing. and there are things that can bring this back up that you might not necessarily connect with the trauma you've experienced, you know, like you you might not think about it until you have this baby in front of you mm-hmm. that you know all of a sudden this comes flooding back into your mind. And I think that's why, um, that's the other reason why these conversations are really important because so much of the focus is on the acute impact immediately after um, the trauma takes place that, you know, I think people can be hard on themselves because they think they should be over it.
0: You know, it's so interesting that you say that. So in the couple of years after the rape. um, I'm trying to think back to that time period. So from like 1999 to like 2001, 2002, Mm -hmm. like the trauma was acute, right? Like I failed out of college. I was spiraling out of control. I was drinking Mm -hmm. heavily. I was engaging in self-harm. I attempted suicide twice. Like I was out of control. Mm -hmm. And then... In 2002, I started dating the woman who would become my wife. And we've been together ever since. And all of that kind of subsided. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was a conscious choice that I was going to stuff it. Mm -hmm. Or if it was just, like, I moved to California. I started a new life. I went to graduate Mm -hmm. school. Right. And so, like, I was fine. Right. Um, I'm sitting here with air quotes. I was fine until about halfway through my pregnancy. Mm actually before that. So I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage mm-hmm. and starting with that miscarriage and not having control over my body mm-hmm. and then being pregnant with my son, mm-hmm. um, all of the trauma came back, all of it. Yeah. Like yeah. it was, I didn't expect it mm. and I didn't know what to do with it. And that's eventually my wife was like, you need to go to therapy. And at that point, mm-hmm. I don't think I had even told her about the rape. And when I mm-hmm. told her, she was like, you can't live with a trauma survivor all of these years and not know it. So clearly there were signs of it. I just mm-hmm. didn't recognize it. Yeah. Um, but it was pregnancy and not having control. Yeah. That made me realize that I was not, in fact, over this the way that I thought that I was.
1: Mm-hmm. And the control issue can come up I think it emerged in so many different ways. And so for me, a lot of the control was overeating. So if I over I mean the physical act of eating. So um I felt like that was all I could control because my life just felt like it was falling apart. Like ULSI was I had to leave school. I transferred to another university. I was drinking a lot. I was using drugs. I was just not taking care of myself. And the eating disorder sort of, along with the drinking, sort of allowed me to feel like I had some semblance of uh, control over my life, even though it was making things much worse. And ultimately, the eating disorder fully controls everything. Um, but it was a way of, I guess, regulating also my emotions, um, and, and and feeling like I had something to hold on to when everything else was falling apart. So it's so challenging how this sort of just reemerges and sort of fades away over the course of
0: time. And in ways you never mm-hmm. you never think about. Right. Right. I don't think that most people think about the connection between an eating disorder Mm -hmm. and trauma or a miscarriage or a pregnancy and trauma because we don't talk about it right enough, but Mm -hmm. they are actually very, very highly correlated.
1: Right. And, you know, just living through a pandemic right now is extremely challenging for all of us, and I think could be triggering also for a lot of people who have experienced sexual trauma. It is challenging on a entirely new level. Um, and I know, well, listen, I were talking about this earlier. Is it my mental illness or is it the trauma <laughs> that are making life difficult? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe listeners can let me know how they feel. Uh. I haven't figured out the answer either my friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, anxiety is just like very high for people right now, I think. And that's one of my biggest challenges, I think, is around anxiety and the the lack of control in a pandemic situation is very humbling and terrifying. And that's yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, you know, it's interesting, Lex, that you brought up, like, what is it? Is it the mental illness? Is it the trauma? Is it the pandemic? Like, what is it? (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I wanted to bring to this episode, specifically around that first question about, like, how do you know that you're over it? When are you over it? Uh, Is that there's actually been some really interesting reviews of the literature on the link between sexual abuse and the lifetime prevalence of all sorts of psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of what we were saying before, that it's not just the trauma itself. It is Mm -hmm. all of the things that are correlated with that trauma. So for example, there was a, a meta analysis done in 2010. And so a meta analysis is a study of other studies that have already been conducted. And this was in the Mayo clinic proceedings journal and the results of it were actually pretty interesting and validating. So, the authors did a search of nine academic search engines on articles from 1980 through 2008 and found 37 studies that had over 3 million participants. And the study looked at links between sexual abuse and a lifetime diagnosis of anxiety disorders, depression, eating disorders, post traumatic stress disorder, sleep disorders, and suicide attempts. Mm. And there was a statistically significant association between sexual abuse and each of these outcomes, regardless of the sex of the person who was harmed or the age when the harm occurred. So this wow. includes both child sexual abuse and rape mm-hmm. in uh, you know teenage years and in adulthood. Um, and the associations between sexual abuse and depression, eating disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder were strengthened when there was a history of rape. Mm. So it was even more prevalent uh, with somebody with a history of rape. Mm. Um, So I found that to be really, really interesting because I never um, really thought about the link between my anxiety and the other kinds of mental health stuff that I deal with Mm -hmm. and trauma. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought of them as two separate things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting too is like, I reflect back on like pre-rape Alexa and I know I had issues with depression because I attempted suicide when I was 16. I know I had body image issues, not uncommon for young women my of that age. Um, I did not have 1 ounce of anxiety in my life ever. I was super sociable. I never felt socially uncomfortable or awkward or I never had that anxiety and now it's such a like uh, omnipresent part <laughs> of my life that mm-hmm. I don't know who I'd be anymore without it. Mm-hmm. And that's that I think for me has been the, the biggest, most significant impact. Um, but then again, I didn't get the diagnosis, diagnosis of bipolar disorder until many years after the assault either. So disentangling all of this is very challenging. So that's really
0: interesting, Lex, that you bring that up. Because so as most of our listeners know, our rapes happened in the same year. Um, we have ties to the same geographic places. In fact, your parents own property, like Mm -hmm. three miles from where my rape happened. It's crazy. Like you've walked that beach Mm -hmm. hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. We were living in the same place in Tacoma got jobs at the same place Mm -hmm. or in the same California state university system at the same time. And both of us have diagnosis, have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder that we got years after our assaults. Um, So I think that's an important point to make here is that you are the only person in the world who gets me (laughs) the way that you get me.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And I want to drive home that point as we're talking to our listeners today that for both of us, the conversations that the two two of us have about this, like, Mm -hmm. well, is it? The trauma this week? (laughs) Is it the bipolar disorder this week? What is it?
1: Is it the pandemic?
0: Is it this? And um, so we wanted to be open with all of you about all of that as we come to the end of this first season, that
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's not always linear. It's kind of all over the place Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a psychiatric diagnosis and trauma Mm -hmm. and anxiety on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's why we've both intellectualized the way that we have and went into a field like this to really mm-hmm. study and understand this both at the intellectual level
1: mm-hmm. and on the
0: personal body level yeah so that was kind of a <laughs> aside back to where we were Interestingly, the same set of researchers over the same time period conducted a second review that looked at somatic outcomes. So those are outcomes related to the body, not necessarily to psychiatry. Uh, And the study found a link between having experienced sexual harm and gastrointestinal issues, chronic pain, and chronic pelvic pain. And that's actually something we're going to talk about at length in a little Mm -hmm. bit. Uh, And when the research team looked specifically at rape, significant associations were observed between rape and the lifetime prevalence of a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, chronic pelvic pain, and functional gastrointestinal orders. So this speaks to what the body keeps the score
1: Mm -hmm.
0: was saying, right? This doesn't just change you psychologically or psychiatrically, bringing about PTSD, bringing about anxiety and depression and suicide attempts and all of that but it also physically changes your body. Mm -hmm. Uh, And later on in the episode, we'll talk about a question that came from a friend of mine who actually is a pelvic floor physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And um, her question was around the fact that so many of her patients live with chronic pelvic pain Mm -hmm. and the link between that and sexual trauma. So many of them are survivors as well. Right. Uh, So Though these two studies didn't address it, it's also um, quite common for people who experience rape as teenagers or in adulthood to have also experienced sexual abuse in childhood. And my assumption is that this would actually compound these issues um, when you're dealing with um, multiple forms of trauma, Mm -hmm. um, that that is expressed um, even more so. Right. Right with both physical and uh, psychological yeah outcomes
1: and i would say too like i would venture to say i don't know i don't i don't know for sure but i would think that any kind of childhood trauma or significant disruption would compound the an adult sexual the impact of an adult sexual assault you know so just mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't necessarily experience child sexual abuse, but you were uh, physically abused or neglected or abandoned by a parent. Like these are all significant events that can, of course, compound the trauma that you experience or the impact of the trauma you may experience into your adulthood.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So one of the things that is really interesting to me is that when researchers were conducting a review of the literature, they didn't find longitudinal studies that assessed bipolar disorder and a history of sexual abuse. Yet the research on that is also pretty clear, but perhaps more recent than this 2010 study. A 2013 study found that individuals with bipolar disorder report higher rates of child sexual abuse. The study could not make a causal link. This means that the author could not say that bipolar disorder is caused by child sexual abuse. But studies have found that there is a link between early traumatic experiences and a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So why are we bringing this up now? This is a really long-winded way to answer the question. So how do I know when I'm over it? Well, we are walking through all of this because we want survivors everywhere and those who have caused harm, too, to understand the long-term impacts that sexual trauma has. We are two pretty successful, accomplished women with PhDs, and we still struggle um, not just with the impacts of trauma, but with the impacts of living with a mental illness and the exponential impact they have together.
0: I would say the exponential and pervasive impact that they both have together. And so I actually was just saying this to my therapist yesterday about how healing isn't linear. And just when you think you're over one thing mm-hmm. or through one thing, something else pops up or you come back and you look at a piece of your trauma in a different light. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what therapy does is helps you to navigate that trauma Mm -hmm. um, and to navigate living with a mental illness. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about in relation to this first question was what's helpful for the two of us when we are triggered, or sometimes I say when we are sideswiped. Uh-huh. And I think the thing that I've learned is number one to recognize um number one what my triggers are, yeah, and I don't always know, but some of them I know, um I'm trying to think of what some of them are, like I can't have my back to a door,
1: me neither,
0: um, which has nothing to do with my trauma except i it, i maybe it's an issue of control, I don't uh-huh. know, I cannot stand being scared. Um, Like my one of my sons loves to jump out and scare me. And I had to have a conversation with him when he was about seven uh, about why that wasn't okay for me because it was such a physical trigger for my trauma. Um, So those are two big ones. I don't really like being outside in the dark Mm -hmm. um, because my rape happened late at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside. Um, so those are things that I know are triggers. Uh, but there are definitely other things that cause side swipes for me. Uh, and what I have learned to pay attention to is how my body reacts to those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so for example, I never, and, and I said this in episode six, I was talking about dissociation and like not being connected to Your body. my body. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a former trauma therapist that I saw who suggested that I go to yoga Mm -hmm. and I did. And that first yoga session, I was sobbing because I was connected to my body in a way that I hadn't been before. She also recommended that I go, uh, try to have a massage. And I've now done that many times sort of to get used to what that Mm -hmm. feels like. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that has been really helpful. So Always paying attention to how something feels in my body. Mm -hmm. Are my hands going numb? That's a big uh, telltale sign for me. My hands go numb. My feet go numb. If I'm really triggered, my face will go numb. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh,
0: And paying attention to that. And then doing breathing exercises um, to sort of regulate that has been really helpful. There's also something called bilateral tapping. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, So sitting and like tapping from one knee to the other knee very rhythmically Mm -hmm. or doing that on the side of my face. Mm -hmm. Um, that really helps a lot too. Um, and then calling Alexa is what I do. Um, (laughs) like I just say, like, I'm super triggered. Mm -hmm. Um, please help me. Um, so it's really helpful to have friends who know um, that, you can be triggered and to know that they are on call for when you are <laughs> and and my connection to Alexa has been a huge part of that because as we said earlier like she just you know me so well
1: it's unspoken yes it's so helpful too like just to have it's a, such a sense of relief that i know like i can say anything and you'll get it and you're not judging me and nine times out of 10, you are experiencing or have experienced something very similar. (laughs) Um, But I just wanted to say about the breathing part, I think that's the most challenging thing for me is that I hold my breath all of the time. And I oftentimes feel like locked in my body, like I won't move, I won't blink. And I'm not breathing. I'm just like, like a deer in headlights and that usually happens when I'm stressed and I feel panicked because I don't know how to get started on a task or something like that but breathing is something that I've been very slowly integrating into my life (laughs) breathing practices Um, but it's challenging and it's another one of those things it's been 20 years and that's still really really tough for me and Uh, that sometimes that pisses me off that it's been 20 years and I'm still dealing with this nonsense. Um, And then, you know, I get a little angry about it. But um, there are ways to reduce anxiety and to manage, like Alyssa was saying, managing what your um, response to triggers are. And Learning those and then being patient with yourself as you learn those because sometimes you are sideswiped and, you know, you have to really be gentle with yourself because sometimes things touch us in an unexpected way.
0: Mm -hmm. And I would also add, um, so I am a huge proponent of medication. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because I have to be on it for bipolar disorder. Um, but I know a lot of survivors who are afraid to try medication, mm-hmm. uh, and my response is always, look, it's up to you. Right. Um, you can only like, you are responsible for your own journey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but for me, um, having, uh, anxiety medication as well as medication for bipolar disorder has mm-hmm. Made it so much easier to deal with the underlying stuff. Yeah, um, because it the, well, the anxiety might just sort of take the edge off of that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a huge proponent of that. It, it can be scary to try for the first time. I remember sure. when I first went on medication that somehow this changed me or made me less strong,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and that is so far from the truth. Like when you, you know, when you have uh, a physical illness and you take medication for it, you don't shame yourself for that. And I think a lot of people who are dealing with mental health issues feel sort of that societal stigma and societal shame around taking meds. Yeah. It's okay to take. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: And for some of us, we have to. Like it would be the stupidest thing I could do would be to go off my medication Mm -hmm. because that would send me into unpredictable episodes that I don't really want to experience. Yeah. Um, And the anxiety medication on top of that is really helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. I felt like before I got my diagnosis, I felt like I was awake for three or four years straight. Um, And then once I, my doctors figured out, okay, this is bipolar two disorder and you, you know, and we kind of adjusted medications appropriately and I was able to sleep again. Wow. What a difference, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And I, I literally look back in that time and I was struggling so much because I was awake all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not a way to go through life. And so I feel like if you, you take it, take a shot, like try it, if it you don't feel comfortable with it, you don't have to take medication, but if you are really struggling, try something different and, you know, sometimes medications make all the difference in the world. Or just
0: even just bring it up to your doctor.
1: Yeah. You know, and it you know, what you
0: just said about like not sleeping. Mm-hmm. So I have had insomnia mm. forever. Yeah. Right. And people who are friends with me on social media will say, like, I see it all the time. Like you're not sleeping. Yeah. Which comes both from mania Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and from depressive episodes and from trauma. Yep. So before I got the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. I thought it was trauma related. Right. Right. And then I went on antidepressants and they didn't work. Mm-hmm. And eventually I tried one that sent me into a manic episode that my doctor, my psychiatrist was like, ah, I have kind of thought that there was a mood disorder going on for a long mm-hmm. time. But now we're kind of sure you have bipolar two uh, and getting on medication for bipolar disorder helped some with the insomnia. Mm-hmm. And then I realized it wasn't the trauma. Right. Right. So navigating both of those things, like they're both important to talk about. Mm hmm. Which Absolutely. is why we're talking about it today. Right. Um, so you, so all of you know uh, the mental illness diagnosis, the bipolar diagnosis, is not something that Alex and I have really been that very <laughs> vocal
1: about at all. Mm-hmm. Like
0: you know, close people in my life know, but I've never yeah. really talked about it publicly.
1: Yeah. Um. I think there's a huge stigma around bipolar disorder too. Yeah. Um. You know, it's, for some reason, that hits the level of crazy that's unacceptable by society. <laughs> like, at some point, people are very comfortable talking about depression, a little less anxiety, super not okay talking about bipolar disorder or anything, at, like, in that realm. Um, But, you know, it's just something, like you are saying, Alyssa, if you, it was a physical illness, it's something that you have to learn to manage and deal with the best that you can and of course is complicated by the other issues and experiences we've had and then the impact they've had on us. But this sort of segues into the next topic we were talking about because as you were saying, Alyssa, that you know when you couldn't sleep, you thought it was the trauma. That's the assumption that I, that's what I assumed when I wasn't sleeping too until I got the diagnosis. And that's also what Every medical doctor and every psychiatrist had been telling me is that anytime I disclosed to a new doctor, they automatically attributed every symptom I had to being a rape survivor. Yep. And it, it, is, it still happens yep. and it's so frustrating. And I think that really kept me from getting that diagnosis from for a really long time because that's all they kept saying. Well, it's you know, it's PTSD. It's this, it's that it's related to the trauma. Never. I mean, it was just sort of by luck that I finally found a a psychiatrist that looked a little bit deeper into my symptoms and Mm -hmm. realized what it was, but yeah. It was moving here to
0: California and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, having, I had tried all of these antidepressants and nothing was working and, um, My wife said, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And it was this psychiatrist, as I was going over my history with her, she's like, it (laughs) sounds like a mood disorder. Like, it sounds like bipolar disorder. Yeah. But I had all, not even just the insomnia, like, I look at my CV, I look at my resume. Yeah. And I look at periods of time where I published, 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 published. Mm Mm-hmm. And then periods of time where I didn't. And until I had the diagnosis, I couldn't see that. Yeah. Um, And my psychiatrist helped me to see that. I always thought that that was like, if I could just, and I've said this in public talks, right? If I could just write the next piece, I could prove that I was fine. No, I was Mm -hmm. manic. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, the last book that I wrote, I wrote in over the course of a manic episode. I sat on my neighbor's porch and just, I, didn't stop typing it was a Mm -hmm. manic episode yeah uh but because of the trauma no one else could see that it it must be trauma related I couldn't Mm -hmm. see it yeah uh and so sometimes I guess this is the long-winded way of saying it might not be the trauma the trauma Mm -hmm. it might be some other underlying issue which just like it compounds both of them Mm -hmm. um but it's important to address as well yeah. So I guess that leads us into the next question mm-hmm. that we got from the audience was really about experiences with doctors. Yes. Um and, and and how to navigate those experiences. So I don't know if you want to start or if you want me to, but both of us have had experiences in the last several weeks that were oh, really pertinent mm-hmm. um to this question.
1: So mine is mine is much more minor, I feel like, in my view than yours. Um, but uh, I've had to go to the dentist, I think, four or five times since the pandemic started. And uh, not to mention the cost, but it's extremely anxiety-inducing to go to the dentist. For me, for you, I know, too, Alyssa, and for many survivors or many people who've gone through traumatic experiences, I think it's that First of all, someone's very close to me and sort of in my space and I can't really move. And I'm out of control of the situation completely, right? So you're in a very vulnerable position. And it is hard enough for me to to keep an appointment and to actually go. But then to have them... They have sort of screwed up multiple times in the course of the treatment I've been supposed to be getting. And, you know, I don't think that they realize how challenging it actually is for me to be there. So when I was getting my root canal done, my hands were just shaking. And the um, dental assistant, she, like, was holding my hands because I was shaking the chair Um. Because at a certain point, I just, the anxiety was just like too much for me to handle. And I just wanted to knock the dentist off of me and run out of the room. And, you know, so that's something that Alyssa and I have been talking about between the two of us with our medical, the recent medical experiences we've had is that there's sort of a lack of trauma-informed medical care Um out there and available, which is in a way surprising and in a way not, like everything else in life. Um, And so it's just, you know, it's one of those things that it either goes one way or the other. Either there's absolutely no acknowledgement that someone could have been through a traumatic event and that might be impacting their medical experience, or everything is attributed to that traumatic (laughs) event, and that's the only answer that there is. So, Liz, maybe you want to talk about... Well, I was going to say about the dentist. Yeah. So, um,
0: during the pandemic, I also had to go uh, to the dentist. I had to get some caps put on mm-hmm. several of my teeth. Um, and, like, I'm laying in the chair and, like, shivering out of control. Mm-hmm. And like, I could feel my body going numb. And the dentist said... Oh, it's not even cold in here. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm not cold. <laughs> this is a trauma response. But
1: right. of course,
0: I can't speak because he's all up in my mouth. Right. Yeah. And eventually I was able to make some kind of hand motion, like, you need to stop. Like, mm-hmm. I need to go take a breather or something. Yeah. But like, so not trauma informed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't necessarily tell the dentist that I'm a rape survivor. Right. But I had an experience with a gynecologist recently. Yes. Um, who was not my OBGYN, um, but my, my doctor was out of the office and I needed to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I walked in, I said to the, to the nurse, like, it is well documented in my medical file mm-hmm. that I am a rape survivor. Mm-hmm. And I need you to know. And I need him to know, I need that doctor to know how hard it is for me to even be here. Yes. So do I need to tell the doctor that or are you going to tell the doctor that? And the nurse said, I will tell the doctor that. Mm-hmm. Now, I will preface this by saying my OBGYN, um, my experience of going to her is fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm fine. Because she walks me through every step of what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, And I mean, nobody enjoys going to the gynecologist, but (laughs) it has to be done. Right. And she has made that process so much easier. Yeah. So I assumed that when I went to another doctor in that practice. Sure. That it would be treated in a similar way. This doctor didn't even acknowledge Mm. my trauma, and then did a procedure that sent me into a full-blown trauma response, full-blown dissociative trauma response. I was shaking uncontrollably, sobbing, but couldn't move. Hmm. The nurse was holding my hand. I think she was rubbing my shoulder. I don't remember. Uh, and the doctor, like, didn't even acknowledge it. That's so- I don't know how I made it home. Um, I, I know I stopped at a friend's house. Mm-hmm. On the way home. Um, and kind of made it like it was fine. Mm-hmm. Got home and my wife was talking to me and I realized that I didn't understand the words coming out of her mouth. And I was like, I I have to call my therapist. Like so I ended mm-hmm. up on a Zoom call with my therapist sobbing for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I point that out because I don't cry about no, this you stuff. Don't. I'm very stoic. It's Mm -hmm. very rare that you will see a reaction like that. Very rarely in the years that I have seen my therapist as she's seen me cry. I was sobbing over this experience. Yeah. Uh, And the doctor called me a few days later to go over the results of the tests that he had done. And by that point, I had found my words. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, I am really concerned about what happened in your office. You traumatized me. Yeah. And he said, well, I knew that you were a survivor. And I like I knew that you needed to have this test done. I needed to have uh, an endometrial biopsy. It's mm-hmm. not a pleasant experience. No, and, uh, he said, but it needed to be done. So I just figured the best way to do it was to just get her done. And I was like, that is the worst thing that you right. can do to a survivor. He says, well, to be honest, I, I said... You need training like you need trauma informed training. And he said, and I will never forget this. I've done domestic violence training. Not the same. I said, it's not the same thing. Like you traumatized me. And he said, well, to be honest, you're the first person who's ever said something. You're the first person who's ever complained. You're the first person I've ever done this to. And I was like, no. Yeah. I assure you, you are not. I'm just the first person who had words because I'm an expert in trauma. Yes, exactly. And he said, well, you should have advocated for yourself in the office. (gasps) And I said, you need to understand that there's a power differential. Yes. Between a doctor and a patient. I said, and even with my expertise, Mm -hmm. I didn't have the words in that office. So when you tell me that I'm the only person you've ever traumatized, the answer is no, you haven't. Yeah. That you have traumatized a lot of people. Sure. Unfortunately, and this is why we wanted to bring all of this up in this episode, mm-hmm. is that so many of us, mm-hmm. so many survivors think that they just have to grin and bear it and yep. just get through it because this is the way it is and there's no other way. Like, it just has to be done. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Right. Trauma-informed medicine is a thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? I have ex- I started this off by talking about how I've experienced that kind of care. Right. With my doctor, mm-hmm. um, but there's a serious lack of training for medical doctors around dealing with trauma effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a really good friend. Uh, her name is Christine Sissy White, and mm-hmm. she always talks about how if it's not, it's not trauma informed. If it's not informed by trauma survivors, yeah, and I think that's what's missing. Yeah, like. Medical appointments do not have to be like this. No. It's okay to tell a doctor or a dentist Mm -hmm. that you are a trauma survivor. And that this is hard.
1: And that this is really hard. Yeah. You know? And I I think another important part, too, and this maybe just, I don't know. I'm going to say it's not just me because usually things aren't just happening to us. They're happening to other people, too, but... I have a really hard time because a lot of the time I am feeling physical pain and I it's it's kind of all over and every time I try and get any sort of medical help for it it's attributed to the trauma that I've experienced and it things just Other possible explanations oftentimes get ignored, and it can be really exhausting advocating for yourself all the time. Um, I think that's another another thing that we have to bring it back to is that it shouldn't have to be this hard. And medical professionals definitely should have trauma-informed training because it shouldn't have to always fall on the survivor to train them (laughs) on Mm -hmm. how to treat their patient you know and there are wonderful medical professionals out there and i've had some really amazing experiences for the most part but there have been some really negative ones as well and it's mm-hmm. and it's harmful to your overall physical and mental health to have these experiences cuz sometimes you just give up and you just say i'm just going to be sick and deal with it or i'm going to skip this year's pap smear or i'm not going to go to the dentist till it's too late and you have to get a root canal alexa so you know that's that's not the the best way either. But I think the way forward is having some sort of like you were saying, Alyssa, training around trauma informed medicine. I hope that it becomes sort of more commonplace to see that. Yeah, uh, totally. And yet, I understand why
0: doctors attribute it to sure. trauma, right? Because as we just talked about a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. the rates of chronic pain, right. Among survivors is very high. Yeah. And there's no, like, it's just, there's no underlying reason for it. Right. So one of the things um, that has been common across my experience uh, with the OBGYN is that I live with chronic pelvic pain. Right. I have forever. In fact, a couple of years ago, you were here. Mm -hmm. I think you came down for a conference. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was a conference, like w- uh-huh. yeah, WS- WSC Yeah, WSC. And we were sitting on the couch and there was some <laughs> random commercial on the TV about, like, Pel- pelvic, pelvic pain. Pelvic <laughs> pain. I was and, like... <laughs> and my wife looked at me and said, well, you haven't complained about it in a while. You must be fine. And I, like, lost it on her. And I was <laughs> like, what do you mean I'm fine? I just don't talk about it because it's every single day of my life mm-hmm. and nobody wants to hear it. Right. And I was like, what's pelvic pain? <laughs> <laughs> so you know when I like I have had gynecological issues Mm -hmm. and one like I'm always in pain yeah and the doctors are kind of like yeah I mean we've done all of the tests we can do right there's nothing Mm. so the answer is so you just live in pain right so I wanted to bring up when we were talking about this question Uh, around something that I found really, really helpful Mm -hmm. and sort of, I think brought the question from my friend who is a pelvic floor physical therapist, um, because I had spoken with her in the past about how I had gone for pelvic floor physical therapy. Mm -hmm. So, um, before I moved here, when I was still living in Washington, um, I saw an OBGYN there and was talking about this pelvic pain and like having an annual exam is really painful and uncomfortable. And for a lot of survivors, sex can be really painful and Mm -hmm. uncomfortable Um, and not just around sexual trauma. Like there are people who have traumatic birth experiences who find pelvic floor physical therapy to be really, really helpful. But one of the things like, so as survivors, we hold that trauma in our body. And as survivors of sexual trauma, we often hold that in our pelvic area, Mm -hmm. in our abdomen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so pelvic floor physical therapy Kind of teaches you how to relax, all of that, which mm-hmm. I found really, really helpful. Now, I am not an expert in pelvic floor physical therapy, but I did want to bring it up on this episode uh, as um, something that is not very well known, yeah, but can be really, really helpful for survivors. It's invasive, it's uncomfortable, um, but it was life changing. Yeah. Um. And so I wanted to bring that up as a possibility for any of you who are listening,
1: mm.
0: who find sexual experiences to be really difficult and painful, who find appointments with your OBGYN to be uncomfortable and painful, any of
1: that. Yeah.
0: Pelvic floor physical therapy can be really, really helpful. And when uh, you can go to our website and we will have links that you can read up on this. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes it's not as simple as going to see a trauma therapist. Sometimes right. it's not as simple as medication. Sometimes you have to add these additional kinds of therapies. Mm-hmm. You know, just when we were starting to record today, Alexa and I were talking about like, it's just another thing. Like yes. it's always something. It's always something. But when you deal with these kind of multiple things, when you're dealing with body pain and you're dealing with mental illness and you're dealing with trauma, you either deal with it and you take the steps that have to be taken. So you can be your best self mm-hmm. or you don't. Right. And we just wanted to offer, um, both the insight into what it is like to live as Alyssa and Alexa. (laughs) Uh, We have this conversation going back and forth every day. uh, And because of our professional fields, some of this personal stuff we don't talk about publicly.
1: For sure.
0: And we thought it was really important with these kinds of questions coming into us that we we just kind of owned it all Mm -hmm. to make it easier for all of you to own it. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And the other thing I just want to say is that sometimes taking care of ourselves is the hardest thing. Like we take care of everybody else and that's not such a challenge. But just taking care of our own stuff is so difficult sometimes. And so, again, just finding those moments to be a little gentle and forgiving with yourself, I think, can go a really long way. And I'm going to take my own advice and try to implement those practices as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to continue to try to. And Mm -hmm. as we end this bonus episode, um, I will just say to you, Alexa, not without you. Like this is the most important thing I have ever done Mm -hmm. in my career was to do this podcast with you and to have you not only as a cherished colleague and co-author and co-podcast co-pod- host, but my writer die. Like, now all of you understand when you say that, what you <laughs> right. mean by that. She is the only person in the world who gets me yeah. on the level she does. And yeah. so I am forever grateful for your friendship. And I cannot wait to come back for episode... Er- Season two. <laughs> I cannot wait to come back for season two of this podcast um, to be to be doing this with you and for all of you listening. Yeah, this has been the greatest joy of my career. Yeah, and that's really. To, oh, sorry, list was to bring this podcast.
1: I'm so happy. I'm like so proud of us, and I'm so happy to have done this with you. I wouldn't like. I couldn't have done this, like you were saying, without you. It's so easy. To, to do something you love with someone that you love and respect so much. And like you said, I am looking forward to season two as well. And we hope you guys are looking forward to it too. So thank you for all. Thank you all for such an amazing first season. And we have been really humbled by all of the support we've had for this podcast. All of the messages that we've received have been so incredibly amazing Um, Don't forget, if you want to catch up on the rest of the episodes in Season 1, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and most other podcasting platforms. You can also go to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Like we said, we'll be coming back for a second season, so keep an eye on our social media. You can join the Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram at beyondfearpodcast and on Twitter at fearcrimes. Feel free to contact us via email at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com.